I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. We are picking up with part two of our deep dive into villainous fives. We are, yeah. And I'm not going to lie, it freaks me out a little bit that it is dark right now. <laughs> like, I'm just not used to it. It's the first recording we've done since time changed, and it's just it's weird. So, Last time I saw Silence of the Lambs, just for to enjoy it, was when my family went somewhere. I was by myself in the house, and it was dark, and I was like, I just want to watch this movie. Yeah, it was sure. the wrong yeah, choice. It's a terrible choice. Your basement is terrifying to leave if you've just been scared. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed this. We are getting to an escape scene we're going to pick up in the middle of this movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, prison breaks. This is a prison break movie. I've, I would never have thought, you know, this should be in the top 10 prison break movies, but it sure. is. Yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. Yeah, you, it counts. You got a favorite uh, prison break movie? You know, I really, I, I, I struggle. I, I just like Prison Break is not it. It's not my genre. <laughs> I get nothing. I really like The Rock. That takes place in a prison, right? <laughs> Welcome to The Rock. Yeah, it does. Got some Alcatraz. Did you ever see the uh, Clint Eastwood Escape from Alcatraz movie? Nope. It's really good. It's sure. like a '70s Clint Eastwood movie, but sure. it was it was fun. All right, I'll look that one up. Um, I'm sure it's the case that I have said in the past that I think the best movie ever made is one Shawshank Redemption. Right. Of course. The, and that uh, movie is spectacular. But, I like that one a lot. But that works. Does it, you don't like do you like bank heist movies? Eh. Huh. These are the two these are I if I could just watch those two types of movies all day long, I would be I'd be so happy. Sure. <laughs> I love stealing. How are you going to break into this vault and how are you going to break out of this vault? Sure. I'm Apparently, I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> yeah, I get that. I mean, I guess the closest I could get is uh, Double Jeopardy, which isn't really a prison break. Did you ever yeah. see that? Tommy Lee Jones and Ashley Judd. I didn't. Yeah. I saw the trailer. Tell so me about she it. basically like she gets framed for killing her husband, who is still mm -hmm. alive, and so Kay. she you can't be convicted twice for the same crime. So she gets out of jail, like she serves her time and gets out of jail yep. and then wants to kill him. And then goes and kills him. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's a, I've, I really like that movie. That's really funny. Yeah. And that's good. There's, I could go off on, on prison break movies now and <laughs> I'm just not going to. You could, Lucky Logan actually is a treat. If you haven't seen this, it's uh, it was on Netflix, I think, for a while. Sure. And it was a joy to watch. It was one of those movies that came out right when pandemic started. Um, 
Well, we're going to pick up right after the senator has left one Hannibal Lecter and with the FBI has actually left Hannibal Lecter with the uh, local law enforcement there in Tennessee. And uh, that's what we're picking up right here in the mill. All right. Ready to go? Here we go. Let's do it. So Lecter is moved to the third floor of a very large building, which the book calls a former courthouse. And that really wants to dress it up as kind of this bunker, um, gothic style granite building in the book. This one just feels like it's a, it's a building in Tennessee somewhere. Sure. <laughs> kind of yeah. old. Yeah. It's a, it's a government office. With building. enough space to build a giant cage in the <laughs> middle like... of a huge room. Because <laughs> that room is apparently empty. <laughs> Fun fact, this is actually a, a building in Pennsylvania that they now host weddings in. Yeah, of course they it's, do. It, it looks like a it, ballroom. <laughs> right? It yeah. looks like a ballroom. So you can say, this is the Hannibal Lecter building. <laughs> they got pictures up on the wall. Of I would get married in that the, building. Uh, <laughs> you would. <laughs> um, well, we see Lecter. He is in his cell waiting for Bill to be captured, apparently, and claim his reward from the senator. And we see Clarice going up the elevator, crosses the big room, and a massive temporary iron cage has been installed, and this is where we find Lecter. There are two officers at the door, and we see Lecter from behind, and he's reading poetry, and he's listening to Bach, and this is a first for him in decades, because he told us earlier he didn't have access to books. I, I imagine the only thing that he's gotten to listen to were those fine televangelists, and we, he is now wearing white and enjoying, you know, the music from that small cassette player, which is chained to a table. <laughs> and the first time that we meet Lecter, he says to Clarice, good morning. And this is the last encounter the two of them will have. And he says, good evening, Clarice. I thought you might like your drawings back, doctor. Just until you get your view. Again, she is moving towards his emotions. Here's something I want to connect with you. And it's a gesture to hand him his humanity. These are the things, uh, what, these are the things in your heart, your memories. And it's going to play out throughout their conversations. Anything on the intro? I just think I, like she had to go back to the hospital and get those drawings. Like, like it's such a, just a very clear, deliberate attempt to say, to, to communicate, I know something that you care about and I'm trying to give you something that you care about. Like, yep. a, like not just humanizing, but it's, it's, it's such a kind move mm. for this And that's exactly film. what he says. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what he says. How very thoughtful. Or did Jack Crawford send you for one last wheedle before you're both booted off the case? No, I came because I wanted to. People will say we're in love. Transitions. Anthrax Island. That was an especially nice touch, Clarice. Yours? Like that that moment, like you got to wonder, did he know the whole time that she was lying? I don't think he did. Because she called it Plum Island. Yeah. Like she said Plum Island, and he acknowledged the fact that it's an animal t test center. Uh-huh. I'm and then she comes back, and he's like, Anthrax Island. <laughs> really? Huh? She is found out, though. I don't know that she knows that she's been found out before. Well, maybe she does. I suppose he figured out how to get a conversation with the senator. Right. Yeah, the second that she talks to the senator, she for sure has been 
been, she's been made. Yeah. Yeah. Is she stepping into this room um, already ashamed? Like he, he knows that I tried to deceive him? I'm not sure if I would use the word ashamed, but everyone knows that she was lying. She knows that he knows. He knows that she knows. There it is. Yeah. Maybe that's what the drawings are about. <laughs> Could be, yeah. She's trying to make amends. She confesses, yes, it was it was her. And Lecter says, yeah, that was good. He then pushes into her ambitions again. Pity about poor Catherine, though. Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. Essentially saying, you betrayed me. I'm not going to help you now. Your girl's going to die because you were deceptive, Yeah. Or it's possibly even Catherine. just acknowledging how much time she wasted. Like if 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 she is a three and he knows uh-huh. this, like the the things about her, he knows that she cannot abide inefficiency. Like this is this is anathema oh, to threes, and and this yeah. this act of trying to trick him into giving them more information has now cost them a tremendous amount of time. I like that. Well, the name that. Lecter gave to the police was actually another puzzle. It's an anagram, and she figured it out mm-hmm. that it's another name for what false gold or fool's gold. Mm-hmm. And um, so she has some leverage too now, because of course she could always just call the senator and say, "Hey, he's deceiving you." Sure, it's a little bit of uh, we're both on the same page here, I think. Right, but he transitions then and says, well, "I've read the case files. Have you?" Everything you need to find him is right there in those pages. And tell me how. First principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Read Marcus Aurelius. Of each particular thing, ask, what is it in itself? What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? It's a good observer line. Yeah. It kills women. No, that is incidental. What is the first and principal thing he does? What needs does he serve by killing? Anger. Um, social acceptance. And, uh... She's spitballing, hoping that he'll say, yes, good job, student. <laughs> but it's clear she's all over the, all over the map here. And Lecter's just going to come out and give the answer. Why, why give the answer here? Well, because he's, he's, he's not really giving her the answer. He's answering his own question. Okay. If she, if she knew the answer to his question, she might be able to figure out the puzzle. What she needs is the answer to the puzzle. So he's going to mm. he's yeah, he's he's answering his own question here, playing the role of professor still. Sexual frustration. No. He covets. That is his nature. And how do we begin to covet Clarice? Do we seek out things to covet? Make an effort to answer now. No. We just... Now, we begin by coveting what we see every day. Don't you feel eyes moving over your body, Clarice? And don't your eyes seek out the things you want? I think this is super important because this is established throughout the movie that other people are watching her. Yeah. And in fact, the director is even filming it intentionally to give the audience the feeling that she's being watched or that we're being watched. Right. Her feeling looked at is a big deal throughout. Right. Buffalo Bill is scary. Everyone looking over you, is that more scary? Is he essentially saying, 
you're chasing this man who covets, but really you have been the object of people's eyes, you know, all your life, or at least certainly recently. Sure. Well, I, I think he's also just in general drawing a parallel to the fact that she knows when people are watching her, which is, again, a three thing. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, another three thing is she shuts down her emotions in terms of how that makes her feel and pushes into the goal. The goal is finding Catherine, and she says, All right, yes. Now, please tell me how. No. It's your turn to tell me, Clarice. You don't have any more vacations to sell. Why did you leave that ranch? Doctor, we don't have any more time for any of this now. But we don't reckon time the same way, do we, Clarice? This is all the time you'll ever have. Later, now please listen to me. We've only got five. No, I will listen now. I will, him being demanding as an observer is real interesting there. He wants the facts or he wants this engagement and he wants to know about her mm -hmm. he's very demanding about it any, guy, any thoughts there oh, it, it's also this is to me this is is like five and eight at the same time mm -hmm. like the the eight being the completely comfortable being in control and the five being absolutely unconcerned about the the subjectivity of the situation mm-hmm like he has he has all the time in the world, mm -hmm. and he is completely comfortable letting this take as long as it needs to take. Mm -hmm. She feels the the pressure of we need to get this done quickly so that Catherine doesn't die, and and he is removed from that subjectivity. It's even the case that he's leveraging the time because tick tock tick tock Clarice, because he's aware that she feels it. He doesn't. Yep. though. He doesn't care. Right. And it's, again, a power move. We've said this with other villains, that when they have control, that's when you see them go low. Mm. Or there, he certainly goes into security there. Sure. He can be more demanding because he's in control. Right. But it is. I think that's right. I think there's just the five and the eight are all over this, of demanding more observations. Yeah. After your father's murder, you were orphaned. You were 10 years old. You went to live with cousins on a sheep and horse ranch in Montana. And? And one morning I just ran away. Not just, Clarice. What set you off? You started at what time? Early, still dark. Then something woke you, didn't it? Was it a dream? What was it? I heard a strange noise. What was it? It was screaming. Some kind of screaming, like a child's voice. What did you do? I went downstairs. Outside, I crept up into the barn. I was, I was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Continues on that, that line of mm -hmm. observational demands, and he knows where to push. It's yeah. like there's some facts here that I can begin to paint in the picture early in the morning. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. Gets her talking. Lambs. They were screaming. They were slaughtering the spring lambs. And they were screaming. And you ran away? And this is the real interesting turn. Normally it would just be you're terrified by this experience you've never had mm -hmm. of watching animals 
be slaughtered, I imagine would be quite terrifying for a young person, especially one who perhaps is emotionally wrestling with death. And she moves inward. She goes, she doesn't run away. She goes further in. She says, No. First I tried to free them. I, I opened the gate to their pen, but they wouldn't run. They just stood there, confused. They wouldn't run. But you could, and you did, didn't you? Yes. I took one lamb, and I ran away as fast as I could. Where were you going, Clary? I don't know. I didn't have any food, any water, and it was very cold. I thought if I could save just one, but he was so heavy. I didn't get more than a few miles when the sheriff's car picked me up. The rancher was so angry, he sent me to live at the Lutheran Orphanage in Postman. I never saw the ranch again. What became of your lamb, Clary? I killed him. And here's the deduction. All of the pieces are now together, and Lecter's going to push into his thoughts. Do you have thought before the deduction? You got any thoughts on this? I just, I love that, that he, like, we now know that he saw this trauma, which is a driving force in her life, mm-hmm. and he wanted to know what it is. Mm-hmm. Like so, so their whole back and forth has been about finding out what her trauma is. Mm-hmm. So like pushing against, pushing into like, uh, were you assaulted? Did did the did the rancher sodomize you? Like mm-hmm. like all of the things that um, the boys with the sticky fingers fumbling in the back seats of cars. Like like he keeps trying to figure out what the central trauma is, mm-hmm. and now here he is. This is this is the moment that he's been waiting for. I just love the way this plays out. Is that about motive? About just her whole trajectory? If I can identify the worst moment in your life and how it has power over you, I can see what your trajectory is maybe and what it unveils about your character. I think so. I think that's a big part of understanding people. Yeah. And I think that Lecter knows that too. The fact that he he has a voracious appetite for that mm-hmm. is interesting to me. Yeah. There's his five side bit. He then puts it all together. You still wake up sometimes, don't you? You wake up in the dark and hear the screaming of the lambs. Yes. And you think if you save poor Catherine, you could make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lambs. I don't know. I don't know. And then this is the one part in the movie, and I mentioned it in the last episode, but the one part in the movie where his eyes, in my mind, seem to really change and soften Hmm. and humanize, and he gets almost a bit teary, and he says, in a very, you know, he's been demanding this whole time, but now he's got a very uh, soft voice, and he says, thank you, Clary. Thank you. And it's like, this is the richness of experience that he actually longs for. Mm-hmm. Um, I got lots to say about that, but do you got any thoughts on... Yeah, seeing the seeing the, the complete puzzle. Like, this is, mm-hmm. this is what he's been driving for the whole time, is to, to solve the puzzle. And here it is, the solution. And he's grateful, he's satiated, he's comfortable... It's this is what he wanted the whole time. Hmm. I didn't think about the puzzle. They set up the puzzle image because she's riding up in the elevator so- solving his anagram. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the puzzle she's working on that he gave her, and then she's offering herself as the puzzle for him. Mm-hmm. Could be. Yeah. Lecter has not been a human being for years. He's a monster. Send this thing back to Baltimore. And here he is trusted with her heart. Mm-hmm. And that is a possession of unsurpassable value right. in his mind. And he steps forward to serve another human being for the first time in years, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And it's in my mind, it's not Clarice who's released because she's not going to get released to the end. There's something about Lecter being released in this moment. He is dressed in white and he's stepping towards humanity. And later we will see him sketch a picture of Clarice holding a lamb, very medieval, you know, Jesus-looking, three crosses sketched in the background kind of image. And she tells him the story of a Savior, and he believes it. And there's something. There's a lot of dark Christian imagery in this movie. Hmm. But I think there's something there in terms of, I want to hear the story of, some, of something being saved. And it affects him in a very primal place, that story of salvation. And then, of course, the overseer of hell walks into the room, and Lecter knows it, and everything shifts, and he is brought back to this imprisoned state, and he says, Dr. Chilton, I presume, I think you know each other. Okay. Let's go. It's your turn, doctor. Out. Tell me his name. Sorry, ma'am, I've got orders. I'd put you on a plane. Come on now. Brave Clarice. You will let me know when those lambs stop screaming, won't you? This is a throwaway line that I think is actually really important. Brave Clarice. He hasn't said that before. Mm-hmm. He's called her Clarice this entire time up to, up to this moment, and he changes her name. Right. The very first thing, you'll know this about me. I love how how names play into movies. The very first thing he wants to do is see her credentials. They are paper. They're going to expire in a week. They don't matter at all. Her story is her character. Her story is who she is. And he got a chance to see it. And he understands. He's the wise old man. Mm -hmm. He He understands who she is. And he gives her a new name and it's the last thing that they say to each other right. before they, you know, she has to go off and fight the, the monster. Right. And she's yelling, tell me his name. But it's, of course, he's telling her her name. That's what's real interesting. She's yelling, tell me his name, tell me his name. And he's like, you are bla- brave Clarice. Yeah. Ah, I, I just like that. Yeah. Um, well, and, and also, you will let me know when those lambs stop screaming, won't you? He's playing the role of, like, like that's the type of thing that a therapist says to someone when they know that the that person isn't going to come back oh oh i took that as a different thing go ahead tell me why you think that because like like he's basically saying we won't we probably won't see each other again Mm. and also i i wish you well on your journey yeah there it is i like the wish you well i i see it as more here's your goal is that you have what it takes to overcome because mm-hmm. you're brave, Clarice. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and in a like we've we've now acknowledged like here is your goal. We've now both acknowledged it because I was able to get it out of you, mm-hmm. and and I I hope it goes well for you. Love it. 
He then raises his voice very loudly, just like the very first time that they met in the dungeon. Clarice! Your case file. And again, she returns to him and grabs this important thing. Um, pulling away from this very large group of men, by the way, and of course at this moment, uh, their index fingers touch. She has given him poetry, has given him artwork, has uh, released him from under the earth, has given him Bach music, and here he is given, he is taking, I assume, human connection. Yeah. Well, and he he hasn't had real human connection except with a victim in eight years. Yep. He's behind glass. He gets strapped to a dolly in a straitjacket. Like he's he's not allowed to move when other people are around him. Yep. And and this is the first moment that he's been able that that he's been able to share physical connection with anyone in at least mm. 8 years. That's it. Yeah. Because he's a human mm. being. Cuz he's a human being. The whole movie is about that rehumanizing of someone, which may not, in, you know, sometimes you only move a couple clicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't capture your full humanity back. But I think there's something there. And he says goodbye, Clarice. And she walks out hugging the case file to her chest and staring back at him as she gets pushed out of the room. Ah! Hey, TJ. What's up? How do you escape from hell? I'm sure there's a good joke here, but I've got nothing off the top of my head. This next scene is one of the all-timers for me. I love this scene. It's so freaky and beautiful. When commenting on this scene, our friend Steve Morris points out uh, that there's a filmmaking term called the promise of the premise. That Sometimes movies will just set up this huge expectation, and when you do that, you better deliver. Yeah, Lecter is genuinely terrifying, but all we've seen is the back of a photograph and a lot of talk, and I suppose we are told that he talked a man into committing suicide. Right. Those are those are creepy. Right. But he's been in an outfit, prison garb, behind right. glass, right. and we he's been strapped to a that. table. It's entirely possible that all of that's lies. <laughs> it's entirely Show possible. Show don't tell, Hollywood. Kaiser Sorze. It could all just be smoke. Yeah. <laughs> but real good movies, they, they give you the payoff. Uh, can't just tell me. So this was the problem for a while. You can't just tell me that Darth Vader is especially horrifying. You, you see him force choke a guy. But I what you know what I really want to see? I want to see him in a dark hallway with a red lightsaber and a room full of red shirt rebels and him just hacking them to bits melee style. The rebels who can actually hit things when they shoot at them. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. TJ, you have a saying for uh, for this, by the way. I do? Uh, yeah. Does uh, it prove it? We've, we've, heard <laughs> we've heard that Lecter is scary. Okay, so prove it. Prove it. <laughs> So we see two guards who are delivering a steaming, rather elegant dinner tray to Lecter's cell. Bach is coming from the cassette player. Beside it on the table is the pile of Lecter's drawings, and the top one is now of Clarice holding a lamb, looking very Jesus-y. Good evening, gentlemen. Okay, Doc, grab some flour. Same drill as before, please. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means he's done this before. He's been here before. He knows how this works. Mm-hmm. 
and could probably figure out how to manipulate the situation if he needed to. Especially if he has happened to steal a pen from one arrogant asylum leader who left it on his bed. (laughs) Has been apparently hiding this in his digestive system, yeah? I mean, that's, that's one part that, like, who knows? Who knows where he hid this pen? Who knows? Or actually, you know what? I remember it from the book. He slit something in his cheek and slipped the pen into part of his cheek. Ah, that's messed up. I probably blocked that out. (laughs) It's so good. Oh, he's so scary. One of the cops says, Son of a bitch demanded a second dinner. Lamb chops. Extra rare. So again, he... What's that? Uh, That just feels like a joke. You know, lamb <laughs> chops extra, extra rare. Immediately after hearing the story of her, oh yeah, seeing the lambs being slaughtered. Well, here's the dark Christianity again at work. I think this is a communion image. Hmm. He has already eaten the lamb, and perhaps even extra rare, you might have a blood image there. Sure, I do not. He's trying to escape from hell. He might push all in on. Uh, give me some some magic here. Yeah. Um, officers enter his cell. Buys his, um, he is buying time here because he's handcuffed at this point and sitting on the floor. There are drawings that are in their way, so the, the cop has to place the food tray on the floor, move the drawings. He goes back to get the food from the floor, and Lecter has freed himself, and Boyle reaches for the food tray. Lecter cuffs him, looks him dead in the eye, and the music changes, and he slams the other cuff to the bar. <laughs> the cop says, Jimmy, watch it. He's got And this is his eyes and their look face to face. I ever, my adrenaline glands release everything in them sure. in that scene. Yeah. <laughs> like sometimes you, you look in somebody's eye and you're like, oh, this is going to go badly. And sometimes you look in somebody's eye and it's like, he's going to eat me. <laughs> he's going to eat me. <laughs> he's going to like, kill me. I'm going to die in this moment and he's going to eat me. <laughs> It's, it's never a good feeling when you say to yourself, you know what? This man is going to eat me. He's going to eat me. Yeah. Lecter kicks the cage door into the other guard, grabs his face, and goes to town on, on, on his face. And Boyle again says, Jesus Christ, which again may come back. Lecter slams Pembry's head against the cage a few times, sprays him down with mace. Boyle, who's the one on the floor, is trying to get the keys uh, to the to the cuffs out of his pocket, and he's super, you know, ad- uh, adrenaline is pumping through his system, and he drops the keys, and he sees Lecter coming at him with a baton, and all you can do, have you had this situation where something's going to go bad, but it's going to be in three or four seconds, and there's that that time <laughs> where you you understand what's going to happen, but it's it's going to take a bit. I have a vivid image in my head. So I've said this in the past. I'm a skier. There was this one time when I was skiing in high school, and I went over what's called a catwalk in order to, you know, in order to get heavy equipment, uh, ski equipment up the mountain. They have roads on ski resorts, mm-hmm. and sometimes what will happen is they cr- they end up looking like jumps. Sure, and they're fantastic. If you hit a catwalk, you can actually get, you, know, you can fly in the air for you know ten fifteen feet. Good times. Sure. Well, I see this catwalk, and I'm flying, and I hit this catwalk. Well, it wasn't a catwalk. It was actually a ledge. Uh. And, <laughs> and so I hit it going fast. Yeah. 
and all of a sudden I'm in the air and I must have been 40 feet up. It's like a Looney Tunes cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) And it was one of those, I'm going to get really hurt in in five seconds. (laughs) And all you could do is go, (laughs) (laughs) that's his face. Memory's face (laughs) waiting to get hit by a baton. Sure. And that's what happens. Lecter hits him very deliberately. And what would you call that? It's the way he's hitting him is like, well, there's a lustful side here, perhaps. Well, but we it, it's about. also like, like we have to remember that, like what they said about uh, Lecter when he attacked the the nurse, mm-hmm. his pulse didn't go above eighty five, even when yep. he ate her tongue. So, huh. so he is full bodied. Like he has to at least knock this man unconscious with his swings, full bodied swings, but he's also completely calm. Yeah. So it's, it's this really intense, like he's, he's calm about it, but almost like, like he's threshing wheat or something. There, That's a good image. That's exactly what it is. It's not, it doesn't feel like a, it's not a passionate moment. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. He's killing someone. He's bludgeoning someone, but it's done elegantly mm-hmm. and, you know, dispassionately. Yeah. I feel like there's a sucking in of the experience as well, which sure. the lustful side, the voraciousness that can come out of AIDS, I think mm-hmm. is going to come into this murder scene. Mm-hmm. Sure. Of engaging all of the senses. Lecter hits him a few times and then is splattered with blood. And we might, again, come back to the dark Christian image here. Um, He finishes listening to Bach, and we hear the other cop, Pembry, who is crawling on the floor towards the door. Lecter decides to listen to the last little riff of of Bach, and then he goes over, picks up a pocket knife from the cop on the floor, and he says, Ready when you are, Sergeant Pembry. Yes. (laughs) Brilliant. Terrifying, awful, amazing. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> uh, anything else on the lustful side? Uh, five's going like going to the low side of eight on that side. That, that just struck me as I, I don't know what it is. The the imagery here just strikes me as when talking about lust in a non-sexual context. I think this is a great image of yeah. of just soaking in the the. The violence. Yeah. Savoring it almost. Yeah. That's um, yeah. It's relishing in what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like like so much of, of this kind of, of violence is portrayed very passionate, very in the moment, very very much like like almost like losing control. And Lecter is in control at all times and is is relishing what he's mm-hmm. doing. He's having, he's enjoying it very much. It's the same as the music there. Yeah. Perhaps. Like yeah. they kind of, and that's that character. We see, uh, so there's a cut to downstairs. And Sergeant Tate, who we meet earlier in the movie, who comes across as highly competent and composed, who's the lead cop, he gets real mad at the elevator moving. And he is, by the way, rocking a fantastic, I don't know what you would call that, a pencil mustache? What is that, that mustache that goes like 
all the way across is real thin. Oh, I don't remember. Do you know what I'm talking about this? You got to look at this guy's mustache online. <laughs> it's good times. Um, but then we hear some loud bangs. And Tate immediately says into his radio. Shots fired on five. Repeat. Shots fired on five. Sergeant Tate. And then after these shots, then we see the elevator arrow start going down and it gets to three and the other and the cops start getting their energy up and they're pulling out their guns because the monster is coming for them now. The monster's <laughs> and, loose. And we know the monster's loose. And then the elevator stops at three. Tate says into the radio. Seal off a 10 block radius. Give me the SWAT team and an ambulance double quick. There is then a string of cops that come and they're decked out in gear and they, they, the SWAT team has arrived, and, and they go up the stairwell, and they peer around the corner right into the elevator, and it's empty. And then they're yelling for their friends, and it feels very chaotic. And the, and the music is kind of building, and they go to the room where Lecter was held, and they burst through the door, and we watch everybody's faces turn, and they're horrified. And then the unveiling of Boyle who has been crucified on the cage and his intestines have been unloosened. What would you call that? Disemboweled. Yeah, he's been disemboweled and strung up. There's another dead body on the floor, which we don't care about at all. This is a scene out of hell that is just terrifying. And there's light radiating from behind it. And... We know that the gore is elevated in order to cause panic. Yeah. This is a brilliant escape from prison. Right. I can't think of anything like this where I am going to scare the hell out of people in order to make my escape. Right. You know? Right. Got some Batman diversion. He knows what will give him the greatest chance. Like he he knows that he needs everyone to be focused on certain things, and this mm-hmm. is how you do it. He he yep. understands the human psyche so well that he That's knows how to get them focused on the things that they need to be focused on, so that they're distracted enough for him to yep. pull off what he needs to. Yep, you're not thinking about clues at that no. moment. Nope, you're not you're not pausing for deductive purposes. Nope. It is completely terrified. You are terrified. You're self-aware. You want to protect your people. You want to get this guy. He's someone in here. He is. He's clearly killed one of your own. That's it. He is a psychiatrist who is engaging their brains in ways that may never have been engaged before. Right. And also, like this is one thing that's that's I think missing from this story. I I don't know how much of this was in the book, but. Hannibal gets into a lot of this. Like he, Hannibal Lecter is also deeply fascinated with, like he, he is a very intelligent person who has spent a lot of time studying art and culture. Mm -hmm. And so he Mm -hmm. also has a great understanding and appreciation for uh, classical literature and art. And this is very much, this is an image from, yeah, Renaissance masters paint depictions a, of of even Jesus on the cross. Yeah, it's there's a uh, you'll find this online if you want to look it up. It's a William Blake okay inspired yeah. image that the at least the director is inspired by that. Whether or not Lecter is saying, you know what, let's make this some William Blake. <laughs> sure, but it's a terrifying, ghastly image. Right, 
Well, and, and thinking about his, um, he he paints the he draws the the Duomo in Florence. Yeah, and Hannibal From takes totally. Yeah, yep. Hannibal takes place. A, a lot of Hannibal takes place in Florence. He's interested in Italian Renaissance, and mm-hmm. how fitting that he would use their imagery. He's been in hell for nine or ten years. The way you get out of hell is with a crucified man. Yep. Dark Christianity right there. (laughs) So one cop is kneeling down next to the other body, which is kind of a throwaway here because the (laughs) kind of distracted. Yeah. Right? And he hears breathing. He's alive. Sergeant Tate, he's alive. Get a hold of him where you can feel his hands, son. Talk to him. What do I say? It's Jim Pimmer. Now talk to him, damn it. (laughs) Just such a great southern cop kind of thing to say. And then he starts talking to the radio. Boyle's dead. Dehumanizing, humanizing as well. So there's like this this man on the floor, his face is destroyed. It's covered in blood. There's cuts all over it. And like he was just attacked by the scariest person alive Mm -hmm. and is holding on for dear life. And so, so this kid kneeling next to him is like, what do I say to him? And, and Tate's like, treat him like he's a guy that you just had lunch with. He is your friend. Just talk to him because he's a human being. God, I love that. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> What's hilarious about that, these cops have been super even-tempered. And, and the director is showing you them freaking out. Right. They should not have left this guy in the hands of the local police. This is a terrible idea. Nobody is listening to Chilton when he says, do not touch the glass. Do not go near him. Do not take anything, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Local cops. You know who's not freaking out? Hannibal Lecter, whose pulse doesn't get above 85. It's true. But we'll save that for a minute. (laughs) But where is he? A fleet of cops arrive. He's somewhere in the building, of course. Uh, One of them, by the way, is country singer Chris Isaac, of whom I know nothing, but apparently he's a cameo. I believe you. (laughs) Ambulance is there. They put the body on the floor onto a stretcher with an oxygen mask, and they wheel him into the elevator, and cops are loading the injured man out when suddenly they get to the first floor and blood begins to drip from the top of the elevator, and they pause. Everyone knows, oh, this is, this is what it is. He's on the top of the elevator. They tell this to, the, to cops who have just arrived or like a sniper team, and they go up the steps, open up the elevator shaft, Snipers look over the edge with some mirrors. They see a person on top of the elevator with a gun. It's clearly Lecter's outfit. They start yelling at him. Nothing happens. They shoot his leg. Doesn't move. So it appears that he's actually dead. Or at least hella unconscious. Like he fell onto the elevator and knocked himself out. Whoops. They then open the top of the elevator roof. And it's all very suspenseful. Uh, <laughs> and everybody's got like, you know, automatic weapons it's pointing so up. Tense. At they just drip. saw their friend crucified and disemboweled. It's terrifying. A, a dead body fl- flops down with a severely mangled head. And there's a quick cut to, to an ambulance. And our other cop who was on the stretcher is in the ambulance going to the hospital. And here is the third mask 
that one Hannibal Lecter wears right. as he sits up and removes the skin, the facial skin and yeah. hair of the Takes this off cop. Pembry's face. <laughs> and it closes in on him approaching one of the paramedics. It's, it's such a great, it's a great <laughs> escape from prison scene. Buffalo Bill and Hannibal Lecter both like to uh, dress in other people's skin in order to get what they want. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure the parallel there is <laughs> exactly straight on. Well, Buffalo Bill is a four and wants different different things. Just quite he's, clearly he covets. Sure, the five wants something else, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't like those as a parallel. Well, I th- I think Buffalo Bill is wearing other people's skins for different reason than Hannibal Lecter this is wearing quite other true. people's skin. <laughs> quite true. Well, any thoughts on on the escape? Uh, it's brilliant and clever and so unbelievably dark. Yep. Um, I wonder how many nightmares Thomas Harris has. <laughs> you know, like if those were the kinds of thoughts that he has in his head. <laughs> I could see. Guys like Stephen King and Harris and um, Tom Clancy mm-hmm. being sixes who just sure. write down all the things uh, that sure. are freaking them out. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I get that. Same story with just to reference Shawshank again. It's not just a great prison break. It's that the theology here is real interesting. <laughs> if you if you say, what is this prison break about? Mm, um, sure. I don't know if the Count of Monte Cristo works the same way. But uh, well, there's something there. Yeah. The Rock. The Rock has clear theological <laughs> overtones. <laughs> does it? That, does that it. Michael Bay <laughs> goes for depth. It is a Michael Bay movie, isn't it? Is it? I don't know. It's a, I mean, it's it, it has like the, Brockheimer the Bay kind of. Yeah. The kind of stylings, lots of explosions. and well, well, we cut to a woman who's getting a phone call, and she's panicked, and then there is silence, and we see Clarice getting the news from her roommate, and she's in a white bathrobe. Lecter was in white, and he escaped. She is in white, and she is clean. There's something going on there, I think. Roommate tells her... They found the ambulance in a parking garage at Memphis Airport. The crew was dead. He killed a tourist, too. That is clothes, cash. By now, he could be anywhere. He won't come after me. Oh, really? He won't. I can't explain it. He, he, he would consider that rude. It's over. She's dead. So it's both, I might be in jeopardy, and also, here's the goal. We were trying to save this girl. And, all, and it's all going together in her head right here. Maybe there was more to find out from Lecter, and she doesn't have enough. You got thoughts on that? Well, I, I love that, I, I really like that she knows that he won't, come after her uh-huh. like like she recognizes that that they had a relationship and and that like that that means something to him mm-hmm. and so like like come coming after her him considering that rude like like she recognizes that there is there is something in him that means honor or civility or appropriateness yep like yeah he kills people in in eats parts of them but but also like he does have a code yep she understands his humanity in this moment he's an he's mm-hmm. an aristocrat 
Mm-hmm. He's not the monster everybody else thinks he is, and he and that's exactly it. He he does have clear values and morals they lives right. according to. Right. And she quickly thinks through him, and it's like, no, nah, that's not going to happen. Right. Like that. This is the place where we talked about this in the first podcast. The, there's the uh, wise old man trope, and with at some point in your story, the wise old man has to be removed so that the hero can go on the journey by themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what's taking place here. It's over, she's dead, means I'm on my own, and I don't know if I have what it takes. Right. But of course she does, because she is brave Clarice. Right. Well, as you know, she's going to go find uh, Buffalo Bill. Yep. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, because there's no fives in the, right. <laughs> in the rest of this movie. <laughs> The most one of the top, uh, top five most terrifying lines for me, however, comes from Buffalo Bill when he's staring down uh, from the top of the well to Catherine, who is just kidnapped, precious, mm-hmm. and she's at the bottom, and he just yells at her. Now you don't know what pain is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that guy. That poor actor who became the <laughs> the sergeant or whatever the captain and monk yeah and right like you still you can't look at him the same way like he's always jamie gunn to me <laughs> it's so true oh, terrifying the guy there's a great documentary called the guy who was in that thing about <laughs> about character actors yeah and one of them is the um Prison guard. I think the same thing about the prison guard that's in Shawshank Redemption. Mm, yeah, um, who's a brutal character. He says <laughs> he's he's a guy who like teaches yoga now, um, but he says he'll routinely go places. He'll be like in an elevator, and some old woman will walk in and just be smiling and mm. look at him and just say hello, and then she'll look towards the wall, and then all of a sudden she'll just look over with a very mean, stern look and stare him <laughs> down. And she knows exactly who he is. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, I get that all the time. Yeah, sure. I'm sure this guy, I don't know his name, but he's he is so good in this movie. Yeah. That he's forever, you know, how do you escape? Right. That's right. who you, that's who you are now. Yeah. Poor guy. In fantastic shape though. That dude was uh that dude was built. <laughs> <laughs> My other favorite line is when Clarice comes in. Catherine, I'm gonna get you out of there, but right now you listen to me. I gotta leave this room. I'll be right back. No! Don't you leave me here, you bitch! No! Yeah, yeah. Like it's always this moment where it's like, am I supposed to laugh here, or is that is that what I'm supposed to? Like she's got to get the Minotaur first, Catherine. That's right. Jeez. <laughs> One of the things on, upon you know tenth viewing of this movie, there's a scene where she's going through the maze and there's a bathtub. With an old woman who's decomposing in it. Yeah. Did you see it's that? The, so it's the yeah, the I get woman it who owned this house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Killed her and let her decompose in a bathtub. Just left her in the in bathtub. Basement. Mm-hmm. There's some. That's some psycho. Yep. Going that guy's on there. Terrifying. Just all all the serial killers are find their way in here. But it's also like like to uh, to something that we said earlier. It's also it's artless. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, like yeah, like this, like in in Lecter's assessment of Buffalo Bill uh, as like he he continually talks about him in a way that's that's almost demeaning. 
Yeah. Like he he talks about like he doesn't use Buffalo Bill. He calls him Little Billy. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's because he sees Buffalo Bill as 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 a, like a a rank amateur. Yep. Like this is this is someone who doesn't know what they're doing. They're trying to aspire to something that I've perfected. Mm-hmm. And and killing the old woman and leaving her in a bathtub in the basement is artless. There's there's no the, he disposes of the other girls. Yeah. And and just leaves it ugh. You know what? The one there's a this builds on what you're saying, but the one thing that Lecter gets excited about when talking about Buffalo Bill is the thing in the throat of the corpse. Because mm-hmm. it means something. He says, was it a butterfly? Yeah. And he gets he gets really kind of But it's also a puzzle a piece. Yeah. Yeah. There's at least some semblance of intelligence here. Mm-hmm. It's not just throw the old lady in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I love your take there. Um, Dr. Lecter calls Clarice at her graduation after she's saved the girl and won the day. She is brave Clarice who's going to get the medal that she's wanted, going to get a job at the FBI. Finally. So there's a there there's some good three uh, payoffs there. Yeah, getting the the diploma, the the recognition that she's looking for. Yeah. Wow, Clarice, have the lamb stopped screaming? Doctor Lecter. Don't bother with the trace. I won't be on long enough. Where are you, Doctor Lecter? I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. The reason he's not going to pursue and kill Clarice is because she's interesting. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting five. That was a good five line. <laughs> it's yeah. like, here's something that brings texture to the world. There's, um, we've talked a lot about how fives are objective. Uh, fives are sort of almost divorced from their feelings. Like he, he sees her as something worth keeping alive because she is more interesting than most people are mm-hmm. like we'll we'll see in a moment that he's on his way to kill Chilton mm-hmm. because Chilton sucks and like he obviously doesn't have any respect for Crawford and like he the the people that he does kill he doesn't find any interest in them this is true. Yeah. None of his victims are are worthy right. opponents. Right. And, and not even necessarily opponents, but but there's almost a like this this is sort of the the central premise. I I've only seen the first Saw film, so I can't speak for the whole franchise, but sort of the central premise of the the Saw film is like are you is your life worth keeping? Mhm. And 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 he sees he offers her this sort of like you are more capable, more interesting, more like there there's enough about your person, about your character, about who you are and who you could be that I want to see what you could do in the world. Yeah. yeah like you are right. interesting enough that the world is better with you in it. To build on that, she's a threat to him because his next line is... So you 
take care now to extend me the same courtesy. That is, I have no plans to call on you. Don't don't pursue me. Right. But I think I think as a on the five side, there's a future fear there. He he's he's looking at uh, what what could happen in the in the past mm-hmm. uh, or in the future, given his knowledge of what's happened in the past. But also that five language of yeah, this you make the world more beautiful. Yeah. Alongside the th- so two things that I love in movies is the who are you, you know what's your purpose kind of stuff and great culminating scenes. Mm. Star Wars, you get you get the uh, princess giving you a medal. You go the distance with the champ in Rocky and kiss the girl. You get to go back to 1985 in Back to the Future. You show the world you got skills in Napoleon Dynamite. You go and see if the Pacific is as blue as it's been in your dreams with Shawshank. <laughs> you find out that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Right. I love culminating scenes. And here... I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Brilliant. Cue the music. Such a good line. Such a terrible wig. (laughs) (laughs) One thing we did not talk about at the low side of eight, but it's all over this, is revenge. Yeah. Yeah. There is a Spanish proverb that is revenge is a dish best served cold. And it feels to me like that's what (laughs) this has a very cold (laughs) side to it. As he's strolling down this, like, it looks like it's, you know, it's a Caribbean street. Mm -hmm. He actually, and this is his, uh, him knowing things about, he knows enough about Chilton, not only to know he's an idiot and isn't worth his time, but if Chilton needed to flee the country, where would he go? Lecter knows this. Sure. He has done the, in their conversations, has has psychoanalyzed him enough to know, oh, okay, well, he's going to the Dominican Republic. And, sure. And yeah. he's just waiting for him. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you're almost rooting for him at this point because you of how badly Chilton are. sucks. Yep. Like, it's a, de- there's a Dexter Morgan side to this where yeah. I don't know if he got into Dexter, but, Everyone Dexter kills, you're just like, thank God. You mm-hmm. he's like he's he's a vigilante that just takes it too far. Right, <laughs> and, right. I mean, that might be the redemption of this character. He he has gone from just killing losers to to uh, perhaps bringing some good in the world, taking out uh, some maybe. of the truly awful maybe. people. <laughs> maybe he just happens to kill one or two really terrible people in his not really caring. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Is it morally okay to to cheer for the death of Chilton? That guy sucks. <laughs> He's also been like he has been a tormentor. Like this isn't yeah, just it. just it it's to me this is deeper than regular vengeance. Like it it's Chilton has been a tormentor of Lecter and has not shown him respect, has not treated him like a human being and it seems like he almost enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, the, like it, Lecter was his prized possession. Yeah. He's an abusive, per, he's a little kid torturing animals that he has yeah. locked in cages. Right. At an advanced level. And right. he's been poking at this tiger for too long. Yep. 
And the tiger got out of the cage. Tiger? Is he? Shouldn't poke the tiger. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you ready for uh, for another uh, five on our list? Let's do it. We're going to jump over to the Hobbit series. It's actually just one of the movies from the Hobbit. It's really the book, The Hobbit, is what we really should yep. focus on. We might quote the movie because Benedict Cumberbatch did an excellent job. That's it. But it's really not about the movies because the movies were terrible. I love smog. Sm- dragons aren't a major character in Western in the Western canon until Tolkien. There's like three. There's Beowulf, and then there's two others who I can't remember the names of. But it just is. It wasn't a thing. There's lots of dragons in Chinese literature, True. but but in the Western canon, you just don't see them. Yeah. But after smog, man, we could name some thing. dragons. Yeah. One reason I I want to talk about these characters not only is Smog a five I think but I think Bilbo's a five as well and the dialogue between two fives is real interesting to me because there's something here I think that in confronting the dragon Bilbo is actually confronting the worst elements of himself stinginess fear greed these are all Bilbo issues and they are represented you know in this one hundred ton worm sure yeah. <laughs> Tolkien calls him the worm. Uh, quick setup if you've never enjoyed The Hobbit. Uh, Smog is a dragon who has overtaken the dwarf mining home called Erebor, specifically their depository of wealth and power. They have lots and lots and lots and lots of gold. Smog lives, up, he like comes in, torches the place, eats a bunch of dwarves, everybody scatters, and then he just lives on this treasure hoard under the lonely mountain. And the book begins with a small set of dwarves who want to retake their home, but they need the help of Bilbo the Hobbit, who's another creature, hobbits. I'm sure you know what hobbits are. They get the help of Bilbo to to reclaim their home. So the whole story, it seems to me, is about this five, Bilbo, who is engaging in adventure. He's moving to action. He's, He's overcoming his stationary life. There are security issues that he's he's wrestling with and overcoming. Um, halfway through the tale, Bilbo has been sent into Smog's lair by the dwarves to find a single piece of treasure, and this is called the Arkenstone. And if these dwarves get this Arkenstone, it's like a magic stone. It's a symbol that all the dwarves in all over Middle-earth rally behind, and they think if they can just get the Arkenstone, that all the dwarves in Middle-earth will come together and defeat the dragon. So Bilbo has entered the dragon's lair, looking for the Arkenstone in this vast underground cavern. And he also There's, has a magic ring that turns him invisible. This is true. Yeah. And it is, it's just piles and piles and piles of gold. And then the dragon awakes. And the dragon has been like sleeping underneath the gold and it begins to shift. And this huge creature rises up in the middle of this cavern and Smog says, Well,
any observation going there for smog, huh? I mean, he can smell. He can hear really well. Uh, yep. Part of that's, you know, he's a mythical dragon. Uh, <laughs> but also, like, it's like setting up, this is this is someone who relies on, on more of his senses than just sight. Yeah. Yeah. Really pushes into, yeah, exactly that. Put, he's put, that's where his power is. It's, it's his, in his senses. Or... I did not come to steal from you. Oh, Smaug, the unnecessarily wealthy. I merely wanted to gaze upon your magnificence to see if you really were as great as the old tales say. <laughs> I did not believe them. Do you Truly, the tales and songs fall utterly short of your enormity, O oh Smaug, the stupendous. Do you think flattery will keep you alive? No, no. No, indeed. You seem familiar with my name, but I don't remember smelling your kind before. Who are you? And where do you come from? May I ask? Any thoughts, sir? I... Like, you gotta wonder if if the... Um, like what led Bilbo to think that that he needed to to be gushing with praise for mm-hmm. this dragon? There's there's no indication that this dragon is moved by it. Yeah, flattery doesn't work. Yeah, at all. <laughs> yeah, and and almost like like what's the point of it even? I suppose what are you gonna say to get out of that situation? <laughs> the, the, Pl- yeah. yeah. You look real strong. I'm uh I need to go. I need to go. Yeah. You seem familiar with my name is a good line here, I think, because it's we talked about this earlier with fives. They know the power of observation. And mm-hmm. when I can observe details about you and know you, then that gives me power. Here, Bilbo has some power. He knows who Smog is. Smog pushes into that. Who are you and where did you come from? And again, of, of course, the I'm gonna love this. The who are you of question course. is all over this. I'm confronting my dragons. Yeah. I'm I'm going to the to that spot and identity is all over this conversation. Well and he's like he's taken over uh the heart of the dwarfs. Mm-hmm. We know that uh elves and man play a role in this story as well. So like he he is familiar with a lot of different creatures and he believes smog believes that he n- knows something about the character of those creatures just on what type they are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so like like if it was a dwarf he would know something about who that person was regardless of what kind of dwarf they were yep like what their what their personality was like or anything he would know something about the character of that dwarf simply because they were a dwarf I think that's right. Yeah. We talked about that some with uh, John McLean and Hans Gruber, where Gruber can't categorize McLean. He doesn't know who mm-hmm. his adversary is. Once right. he finds out he's a cop, then he's like, okay, I know how to process this and move forward. Same right. story. I've never smelled your kind before means I, I don't have the information to give me control in this, in this situation. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Bilbo starts a string of mysteries, like little riddles. Little riddles, I com- yeah. I come from, I suppose, there it is. It's riddles, because that's what he does with Gollum earlier. 
from under the hill. And under hills and over hills, my path is led through the air. I am he who walks unseen. Impressive. What else do you claim to be? Uh, I am... Luckwearer. Riddle, riddle maker. Lovely titles. Go on. Barrel rider. Barrel. Now that is interesting. And what about your little dwarf friends? Where are they hiding? Dwarves. No, no, no dwarves here. You've got that all wrong. Oh, I don't think so. you in here to do their dirty work while they skulk about outside. Truly, you are mistaken. Oh, Smaug, chiefest and greatest of calamities. You have nice manners for a thief and a liar. I know the smell and taste of dwarf. No one better. Collecting information here, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, he's just trying to figure out who this character, who this person is. Like, like, what type of person are you? He seems to me to be angry. He's angered by two things. One, that Bilbo is a liar, so he's the information isn't reliable. Can't right. can't can't observe the world cleanly if you're getting false info. Right. And he's and he's mad that he's a thief. Yeah. He's come to take my stuff. Um, and these are the things that set Smog off. You want to talk about either of those with fives? Well, the um, the liar part, I think, plays into both five and eight. Five in security, moving eight. Um, he he can't properly, he can't appropriately categorize the information if the information is unreliable. Mm-hmm. And also, how dare you lie to me? Mm-hmm. I can smell dwarves. I know what I'm talking <laughs> about. You're lying. Stop lying. There it is. And that the right. and the uh, the thing about being a thief, like he's fives are like they're they're very protective of their things. Uh, mm-hmm. The like they protect the information. They protect the the their possessions. Like like they are concerned about not having enough. And like as a <laughs> a, a hoarder. <laughs> Clearly, like he he's doesn't want anyone taking his stuff. Is there something worth saying about fives on this front? What what good is gold to a dragon? You know. Sure. Well, I I don't know that that, that anything valuable will transfer over from the dragon metaphor, mm-hmm. um, but I think that there is something to say about about being overly protective about the things that you have. Because it it means that you will sometimes care more about your possessions than people who could a benefit from your possessions and who could build relationship. Mm-hmm. If you weren't like like caring more about your stuff than the people who need your stuff means that you don't care about the people. Yep, and like it it leads to a lonely existence. Lots of that going on in this movie. Bilbo right. is that way at the beginning. He's got all of his stuff. He's secure in his hobbit hole. The dwarves upend all that. Sure. And by yeah. they pillage his pantry. Right. But it, but in some ways he begins to connect when he gives out of that place. Right. That's not where smog is. And that will be 
Thorin's struggle as well. Once Thorin takes over, his greed keeps him from connecting with others who right. are different from him. Right. I think that's a it's a there's a great image of of greed that it's not just it's it's not spending too much. It's hoarding. The dragon hoard is a, right. it's a good image there. But you're hoarding things that you'll you'll never spend. Right. And, that, and there's well, it's a false security. You're trade as you were saying. You're trading these goods you'll never use, accumulating them at cost to the relationships yeah. you could have, the connections you could have. Yeah, keeping more embodied. than you need that you might never use. All characterized by a hundred ton worm. Right. It is the gold. They are drawn to treasure like flies to death flesh. Did you think I did not know this day would come? That a pack of canting gods would come crawling back to the mountain? And he's mad. He's moving through the cavern. The dwarves outside hear it. An earthquake. That, my land, was a dragon. It's a good line. What I, there's there's a lot of future fear here. The dwarves might mm-hmm. come back. It, they may come back to get my stuff. I knew this day would come. Yeah. Anything we're talking about there in terms of like the the stance? There is a um, future focus for fives in their fear, but there is a past focus in terms of here's who the dwarves are and were, and I understand them. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think so. So this is part of the, the five, like the, the few calling fives and their fear, like using the, the term future focus is, is a bit misleading because they, it, it's fearful about an imaginary future, Mm. but it, it's preparation for an imaginary future. So, so like he, again, I don't know that the dragon metaphor fully translates but part of keeping and hoarding that wealth is in preparation for imaginary futures and it's it's a focus on what i i understand from the past in order to prepare for those things that might happen in the future yeah so like he knows that the dwarves will come back because he understands the character of the dwarves but he's not like building barricades for that day. He doesn't have any kind of action. He doesn't have any plan. Like there isn't a a, a focus on the future. It's it's more of a. I think that the dominant time focus is more about the stance. Like it's it's a withdrawal. He's waiting for the dwarves to come back to him, mm. which could be any day. He knows it's going to happen someday right yeah that's so. good there's not a lot of smog dialogue so i'll just say the other five lines of in this movie he says the king under the mountain is dead i took his throne i ate his people like a wolf among sheep i kill where i wish when i wish my armor is iron now no blade can pierce me. And later, you, Bilbo. You are being used, thief in the shadows. You were only ever a means to an end. 
The coward, Oakenshield, has weighed the value of your life and found it worth nothing. Let's talk of value here. Lots of, uh, you, you mentioned this in our last podcast, but you, knowledge of the person in front of him, he can use that knowledge to take control and turn other people against. He's aware of the relationships at hand and uses that information. He wants to create tension between and yeah, turning others. turning people against each other, right? And and this is like that's clearly what he's doing here. He's like you you are a tool in someone who does not care about you, and so stop helping them and and yeah. essentially using his knowledge about both Oakenshield and Bilbo to to try and get them to fight each other. Mm-hmm. That's it. Bilbo says, no. no, you're lying. What did he promise you? A share of the treasure? As if it was his to give. I will not part with a single coin. Not one piece of it. There's a lot of greed going on here. And then he pushes into his strength. My teeth are swords. My claws are spears. My wings are a hurricane. But Bilbo sees a scale that's been removed near his chest. So it is true. The black arrow found its mark. That is early in early days um, when Smog first took Airborne. Um, he was hit with a large arrow, a spear-looking thing, and it removed a scale. And so his heart is exposed, as it were, to being, you know, in that that soft spot. And Smog has analyzed himself. Here are all my strengths. Mm-hmm. Bilbo has analyzed and found a weakness. And again, I, I wanted to say there's something about being analyzed. When the five understands they're analyzed and their weaknesses are exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Smaug is also speaking out of his his eight place here. Oh, go there. Like you can't you can't touch me. I'm stronger than all of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wings are hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Bilbo's like, oh, but what about that little spot where you can be killed? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That is yeah. what's going on. There. Pointing out a vulnerability, which is which is bad for fives and eights. This is this is your weakness. And also having knowledge of something that that Bilbo shouldn't know about. Mm-hmm. Nobody should know that he immediately knew the Black Hour Arrow found its mark, and mm-hmm. and Smaug was like, "Ah, they're on to me." That that's that's information that other people shouldn't have. Yeah, takes away your security. Right. What did you say? I, I, I was just saying your reputation precedes you. Smaug the tyrannical. Truly, you have no equal on this earth. Smog then sees the Arkenstone, because Bilbo has it now. I am almost tempted to let you take it. If only to see Oakenshield suffer. Watch it destroy him. Watch it corrupt his heart and drive him mad. All these things are going to be true. But I think not. I think our little game ends here. So tell me, thief, how do you choose to die? 
Bilbo puts on the ring and runs. Any thoughts on that last line? There, like he's, like he's playing a game. He's having like it. It's it's not that it's fun, but it's like it's interesting for a few minutes, and and just the like the back and forth is stimulating to him. Mm-hmm. That is a big part of the book. Yeah, Tolkien really wants to elevate that. There's there's something that fascinates dragons with this kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. And I I think this is a large part of what Lecter is experiencing with yep. Clarice. Is is it's, perfect? Yeah, it's stimulating. I think that's right. I wonder if that's we're going to get to our next character in a moment, Anton Chigurh. But I wonder if there's not some of that going on in his character as well. Sure. Last line from Smog before he goes off to Lake Town is he's flying away from the Lonely Mountain That may, I don't know if that's low side of eight because he doesn't seem very secure in that moment, but there was something. And he's always secure. He's a dragon. Oh, maybe that's it. He just, <laughs> is it like Lecter? He's just living in security? Yeah, living in security. <laughs> he's a dragon. <laughs> Let's talk about Sugar then. Some okay. of you will not have seen No Country for Old Men. Some Which of you includes have, some of me. Right? Yeah. Some of you will have seen No Country for Old Men and thought to yourself i i didn't get it <laughs> which sure. is entirely justifiable this a this is a dark heavy movie it has very little music the and the main character is is a, a homicidal nihilist who's it's like an assassin bounty hunter kind of character um so anton sugar is this enormous man very bad haircut which is intentional whenever somebody there's something about the bad haircut that makes people creepy. It's like it's sure. not quite a comb over, but what would you call that haircut, man? It looks like it's a almost mop's on a the bob. dude's head. There it is. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bob. Um, it's kind this of a, is someone who doesn't understand how to fashion himself to fit in in the world. Yes, like he's that's why disconnected. The weird. That's yeah, and and that's that's part of why most portrayals of legitimate psycho and or sociopaths uh-huh. like there's there's something off about the way they look it's because yep. they don't understand how to like the rest of us are shamed into grooming ourselves in particular ways <laughs> or else we were wholly bad at it you yep. know but a lot of psycho and sociopaths yeah like they they don't learn those skills in uh, in Dexter, that's like most of his inner monologue is about that. It's yeah. like, look normal, keep it together. This is how how normal people act and behave. And he's always thinking about that because it doesn't come naturally, and he has to pretend. Right. Sugar is like this Terminator style character that is just constantly hunting down his target, and yet he's very thoughtful. And uh, when he's comfortable. He exerts his power to the low side and often will execute the person in front of him. Um, it, it could be the case that this character symbolizes death or meaninglessness. I mean, there, there, there may be you could you could pin a couple of like big dark images to who this character represents in this world because the movie is is about 
meaning, finding meaning in a very, in a wasteland there in the desert world. Fun fact about the movie, the, there is no music in it, but there's a lot of wind sounds Hmm. in the, one of the, I don't know if this came from the screenwriters or somebody in the production, but they quoted Ecclesiastes, which said that, you know, wind, wind, everything is wind, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. This is how Ecclesiastes starts. Hmm. And the wind is supposed to, you know, we're talking about meaning and how just everything eventually falls apart or, you know, there's perhaps no rhyme or reason to anything. And that's what's going on in a lot of this movie. So, sure. and that's characterized by the most famous scene, which occurs real early on. You know that Anton Chigurh is a serial killer, as it were, assassin, you know, bounty hunter guy. And you know that he's terrifying. That's all you know. You see him kill some people. Right. And he walks into a gas station. How much? 69 cents. And the gas. Y'all getting any rain up here, one? And Chigurh pauses and looks up at him very coldly. What way would that be? I've seen you was from Dallas. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from, friendo. I don't. I don't know if this is true, but I, if with smog, with Lecter, and here, I don't want to be observed. Seems to me to be a big thing for these characters. It's not just observed. It's that I don't want people to know things about me that I have not given to them. Oh, ooh, yeah. That's a better way to put that. Yeah, because like the, this is this is part of why they why fives protect their in like they they don't share themselves very much is because they don't trust that when their information gets out there that it'll be safe. And so when they find out that somebody knows something about them that they didn't share on yeah. purpose, there it's it like it's it's a it's a vulnerability, it's danger, it's um, it's all kinds of red flags for them. If you're in a relationship with a five, then what is that about? Say it's the case that I'm in relationship with a five and I'm not getting, I'm not connecting with them because they they do hold so much close to the chest. Mm-hmm. This is something that like to, to recognize as a reality for fives and to also give them opportunity to share small things mm-hmm. and then never tell anyone else about it. Oh, like they have sure. to learn that they can trust you with little yeah. things. Like it's it's like just building up trust, and and like if you break that trust, you've probably broken it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just it's really just getting getting to a place where they feel like they can open up about those things. You can push a little, and and recognize that they may not give, but they might give a little, and then you just back off. Mm-hmm. Like a little bit at a time, might like and and building that 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 relationship, that trust over time. Really, it's the best way to get into a real sharing space with fives. That's good. And also, do not ever do that in a group setting. Do not ever do. Try and get them to share things that they don't want to share. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. One on one, great. Group setting. Probably not going to work, and they probably won't ever be in that group again. <laughs> right. Gas station proprietor says, I didn't mean nothing by it. Didn't mean nothing. Just passing the time. If you don't want to accept that, I don't know what else I can do for you. 
Might be something else. I don't know. Will there? Real uncomfortable conversation. Right. When you're watching this, you know he's a, <laughs> he kills people haphazardly, and you're just like, this isn't going well for this guy. Right. And he's even kind of starting a fight. He's pushing hard into, again, kind of a position of power with questions. Do you see anything there? I mean, it, it, it seems like he, and except for the killing people part, like this, this seems like the kind of thing that might happen if you push too far into a five. You know, mm. like like the fact that he knew he was from Dallas, all of a sudden, Sugar is like he's vulnerable now because this person knows something about me, yeah. and I'm uncomfortable with that. And because Sugar is a bad person, he's going to make it worse. He he's attacking him with questions. It's not claims or statements or threats. You know what I mean? There. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thing from a, I don't know if that lines up with Observer on the front that you're saying, though. It's, well, the next line is. Is something wrong? With what? With anything. Is that what you're asking me? Is there something wrong with anything? Which is yeah. just real uncomfortable. <laughs> and And also moving into this place of, like, not just uncomfortable, but so condescending. Mm-hmm. Like, like, really? That's what you're going to ask me now? Is there something wrong with anything? Like, mm-hmm. the the defense mechanism here is to move into pure protection, mm-hmm. which include like, it's not just armor. It's armor with daggers sticking out of it. Right. <laughs> My philosopher soul kicks up here because there's lots of just undercurrent here where it's, Meaning in life. Is there something wrong with anything? These are philosophical questions, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, the death has walked in the room and you're being asked, you know, what are you doing with your one and only life? Just passing the time. If you don't want to accept that, I don't know what else to do for you. That's not a gr- great answer. Right. When death walks in the room, you know. Right. Um, so the gas station guy wants to shut this conversation down. He says, will it be anything else? You already asked me that. Oh, well, I need to see about closing. See about closing? Yes, sir. It's a, what we've said before. I mean, it's just this tug of war taking place, and mm-hmm. he is just consistently pushing for power. Yeah. And also pointing out, w- without pointing it out, he's he's pointing out how stupid the things that the clerk is saying. Yeah. There are a handful of, really clever fives in my life who work with and they will do this mm-hmm. where I, I misspeak all the time. Those of you who are familiar with our podcast don't realize how much <laughs> cleanup TJ does every week. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in this situation a handful of times. And it, it's, it's really just like sugar is being really mean about it, but it really is like, think about the words that you're saying and what they yes. mean. That's what it is. Yeah. A colleague of mine asked me to do something, and I said it would be my pleasure. And he said, really? Would it be your pleasure? And then he started deconstructing pleasure. Yeah. And I said, (laughs) I'm serving you, asshole. Get out of my office. (laughs) (laughs) Although this is a very intimidating man that I said that to. Sure. (laughs) I did not say you're an asshole and get out of my office. But closing the store is another image for death, I think. And and Shigeru says, What time do you close? Now we close now. Now is not a time. What time do you close? 
It's just so so uncomfortable. There, um, like there are rules. There's there's structure. You rules. You were open at a specific. You were you open at a time and you close at a time. Now yep. is not a time. Think about the words that you're saying. He says generally around dark at dark. But that's exactly right. Sugar is a big rule guy. Then throughout the rest of the movie, that's a good call. You don't know what you're talking about, do you, sir? I said. You don't know what you're talking about. What time do you go to bed? Sir? You're a bit deaf, aren't you? I said, what time do you go to bed? Closing the store. Going to bed. All of these are images of death. And it's no good when there's, you know, <laughs> the Terminator has walked in. Sure. Um, somewhere around 9.30. I'd say around 9.30. I could come back then. Why would you be coming back? We'll be closed. Yeah, you said that. Don't treat me like an idiot is also going on. What is the story here actually with the five in this situation knows what the guy is saying is analyzing what the guy is saying, but the guy, the gas station uh, proprietor isn't paying attention to what he's saying. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also wonder if, if like part of sugars, Emma, like I, I haven't seen the movie. I have seen this scene. I've watched it a couple of times, but I wonder if part of his, mo is about looking for someone to spar with and so when he finds himself Mm. in a situation like this it just deteriorates farther and farther where he just keeps getting he not not frustrated but it's but it's like throwing it back at like the um like the the line about you're a bit deaf aren't you is like stop being stupid understand the words that i'm saying yeah Something similar there with again with Smog and with uh, Lecter. They're mm-hmm. just they they want to have that sparring partner. Right. That happens with uh, Sherlock a lot as well. Right. In terms of uh, he points out all the things in somebody and people say you know piss yeah. off and they yeah. walk away. <laughs> and he gets really frustrated that people don't understand him. Yes. Like, like follow follow along keep up. Don't don't say stupid things immediately after I've said something. <laughs> well, I got to close now. He's definitive at this moment. He's like, you know, I'm going to get out of this situation. You live in that house all back? Yes, I do. You lived here all your life? This is my wife's father's place uh, originally. You married into it? We lived in Temple, Texas for many years. Raised a family there. In Temple. We come out here about four years ago. You married into it. <laughs> That's the way you want to put it. Well, I don't have some way to put it. That's the way it is. All of a sudden, his whole life has been unpacked here in front of this image of death. Mm. What you have in life, the assets, have been handed to you by somebody else. So what meaning has your life had anyway? You lived in Temple, you had three kids. And that's where it's, it is. It's like, mm-hmm. you've told me and you're just, and now you're just passing the time. If you don't want to accept that, I don't know what to do for you. And, and also I'm, I'm starting to understand who you are as a person. Do you understand that's it. who you are? Yep. Yeah. Is there something there about fives? He's, he's, he's totally secure. Mm-hmm. Sugar is. Yeah. This, uh, this person, one is not a threat. Two, he has absolute understanding of the situation Mm -hmm. and if he wants to go to the dark side 
of eight can clearly get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is also like, we're also seeing, it's like we, we talked about so much of Lecter trying to find a sparring partner, f- trying to like having this great back and forth. And the, like the one moment where we see where he starts to lose respect for the other person is when he's talking to the Senator and mm-hmm. he says, by the way, love your suit. Mm-hmm. This is a moment. I, I think this is the opposite side of that conversation. Like this might be more like what his, com- what Lecter's conversation with Chilton was like. Mm. Yeah. And, and if you've ever seen uh, like continuing on with the, the professor and grad student analogy, like the mm-hmm. advisor grad student analogy, if you've ever seen a professor in a class start to talk to someone who had no idea what they were talking about and just like keep pushing at like essentially just burying them under a load of you are not up to my level. Yeah. Is that a power move? When I have conversations with someone in those, so I, you know, I have been a professor and Mm. I'll push conversations hard at times it's mostly I want you to, well, for me as a one, I want people to get better. I want mm-hmm. the person I'm interacting with to get better. Sure. What's the what's the motive here, you know, from from Lecter, Smog, and Sugar? Uh, I'm being that they're unhealthy and villains. I think it's to put them in their place. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's just, that's yeah. the measure of control. They're here's yeah exhibiting the control yeah. there. Yeah. You are not at my level and. I am going to firmly establish that now. It's good. Um, Sugar finishes the cashew, and then Sugar changes the subject again, and he says, What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. <laughs> I would love your thoughts on that. I, I think he's like he's moving past the place where he's interested in explaining it to anymore. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> that's true. He's, he's at the thing that he's here for mm-hmm. and he's like, this guy clearly is not understanding what he's saying. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm just going to say what I mean and you can understand it or not call the coin. Yeah. There's something that, again, the philosophical side, I mean, like the, he has just unpacked. This is who I am. This is my life. I've, I've told you how I spend my time. How many times is, does it take place in our lives where we might have died if we drove down that road and not the other road? Sure. You know, and it's a coin flip. Right. I decided to stop at this gas station and not, you know, go to the restaurant and then at the restaurant, something awful happened. It would be, and I think that's, there's something underlying here, there. Um, Shigur says, you know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Well, look, I 
need to know what I stand to win. Everything? How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. All right. Heads in. There, by the way, is almost, again, no music in this whole movie, except for this one scene, and they have this, like, real subtle organ sound that's, like, droning underneath this. Sure. Uh, Shigeru moves his hand. Well done. <laughs> the gas station guy, like, kind of crumples, and he takes the quarter. Don't put it in your pocket, sir. Don't put it in your pocket. It's your lucky quarter. Where do you want me to put it? Anywhere not in your pocket. What will be mixed in with the others and become just a coin. Which it is. <laughs> I get my philosopher's <laughs> just jumps up and down here. Um, the control of the situation, hyper-observant of this man's life. The nihilism here, we haven't talked about fives and their, the nihilistic side of fives. Sure. Um, but seeing life as just a coin flip. Mm-hmm. Um, this coin is special. It's your life. Honor it. But of course, it's inevitably just a coin. Right. You know, it's a good, I just like that as a nihilistic way of thinking about the coin. Do you guys any other thoughts on this scene? I'm drawn to the fact that, that Sugar refuses to tell this man what game they're playing. Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't recognize it, I'm not going to spell it out for you. Mm-hmm. And also because, you know, Shaker is clearly a terrible person, mm-hmm. but there is a certain amount of of holding back, even in this, that speaks to that protection of of I'm not going to share with you what this is for or what I'm going to do beyond this. You are engaged right here, mm-hmm. and that's all you get. And and part of part of fives moving to eight in healthy ways is them stepping into situations and saying, I have the information that you need and I know how to lead us out of whatever whatever thing we're in. Mm. Yeah. But five moving to eight in an unhealthy way, an unhealthy five moving yeah. into an unhealthy eight space will not tell anyone what they're doing they're just going to take control because fives aren't likely to share and eights aren't aren't really that share eights are just going to do the work that needs to get done they don't really want to explain to you why mm-hmm. and here's like an unhealthy five moving into an unhealthy eight saying like like he's not saying anything he's just jumping into the game i mean it's not really a game but no that's uh, that's perfect the two there's two big scenes later on. There's one with there's another coin flip scene in which a woman refuses to call the coin, which makes it real interesting because mm. she's not willing to go down that path and what sure. that might mean. And then the movie ends with with a man just talking about his dad and the the life of uh, somebody who is his hero ish, and then the movie ends and. I like the image there of the five whose knowledge is trying to get you on the healthy side out of the rut. And that's Mm -hmm. not where he's necessary. He may, I don't know if he's trying to get there. Is he trying to get there? Well, there's also a a little bit of a, um, there's a scene in fight club where the two main characters take a guy out of the, out of a 
gas station, a guy who works at a gas station and point a gun at the back of his head and say, what were you trying to be? Yeah. And like, like it's this really intense, like go actually live up to your potential instead of working in this crummy gas station mm-hmm. kind of moment. And that there, there is that, that kind of sense of this as well is, is like the gas station guy probably doesn't know this, but we know that if the, if he had called it wrong, he was probably going to get murdered. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and so like that, that's the importance of this coin is, is, like this is your life because if it had gone the other way, you would be dead now. Mm-hmm. And and sort of this like live into your like be be grateful that you that you lived. But in this bringing in the nihilism, like it it's not like there's no meaning to it. It it's it's chance, and and the fact that he doesn't explain that. Like, like very much this, like, I'm trying to help save the human race, but I don't have time to explain what I'm doing to everyone. Mm-hmm. I have, I have 20 questions to ask my five friends now is actually where I'm at. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, that's excellent. Okay, well, our last character requires a five uh, to help us with this conversation. And that would be one Aaron Burr from the musical Hamilton. In order to really do the deep dive into this, we have brought in an expert uh, in all things Hamilton, which is my youngest son, Beckett. Excellent. Hello. Hey, welcome, Beckett. Beckett is one of only five people in the world who has actually seen this thing live. I don't think anyone's actually seen this live. (laughs) Because <laughs> nobody just, can get tickets. They just if nobody put the can ticket, get tickets, tickets online and say they're sold out right away. <laughs> I have not seen this live. Mom went to see it. Did you not see it live? No, she left me. But That's right. <laughs> I forgot about this. <laughs> well, we can all tell that you're bitter about it. So <laughs> yes, good. Very bitter about it. Well, you've at least listened to the uh, to the Spotify version. Ah, yes. And I've seen the movie. We have all seen the Disney a couple times. Well, we're going to jump in with just two songs, which have a lot of five going on. And Beckett, who is a five, identifies as a five, is going to help us out on the inner life of one Aaron Burr. The song, this is one of the early songs, yeah? Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? That depends. Who's asking? Oh, sure. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. I'm getting nervous. Sir, I heard your name at Princeton. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. When I got sort of out of sorts with a buddy of yours, I may have punched him. It's a blur. Sir, he handles the financials. You punched the bursar. <laughs> you, got, you got thoughts on anything so far? When he goes to the... that Who's asking... Uh, Oh sure, sir. I'm Alexander Hamilton. Uh, it's the the that depends who's asking. Um, it, he's trying to make sure like it's somebody he wants to be talking to, I guess. But mm. yeah. that's a questions perhaps going on there. Yeah. Well, and again, it's a another version of the who are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we talk a lot about who are you statements in fiction. Ah. Uh, Yes. yes, I wanted to do what you did, graduate and to and join the revolution. He looked at me like I was stupid, I'm not stupid. So how'd you do it? How'd you graduate so fast? 
It was my parents' dying wish before they passed. You're an orphan. Of course, I'm an orphan. God, I wish there was a war, then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. Beckett? Yes. Aaron Burr wants to fulfill his parents' dying wishes. Yes. Why is that a, why is that a big motivator? If your parents died, would you care about what we said? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Dad. Would I care? Um, well, so it's like his parents' dying wish is something that he possesses, and he's trying to make sure that is complete because it is all he has when his parents die hmm. or all that he cares for. Yeah. There is a lot of relationships as possessions. Yes. In in Aaron Burr's character, which especially mm. we'll see it in the the next song. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. You got thoughts yeah. on that? Keith? I think that's a great observation. Uh I one that I didn't think about, so thanks for bringing the five perspective there. I I also am struck by how much dialogue there is for Hamilton and how little there is for Burr. Yeah. In in my opinion, it's not that Aaron Burr is the villain in the story of like actual history. It's just that in in the show Hamilton, Lynn Morrell wanted to uh, do everything like on the books. Like it, these are none of these happened. They're not singing. That's not how the Revolutionary War happened. Hmm. But he has to give character to all these these people that have died. So he chooses that Aaron Burr was most likely the biggest uh, negative influence on Hamilton. So in the musical or movie, he is shown as the villain, even though he might not be the villain in in history. The thing that struck me is it then moves, the song moves it, with uh, Hamilton saying that he's an orphan and... TJ, you and I just talked about how fives don't open up relationally very mm -hmm. easily. Right. But here's a point of connection. Right. And Burr says, Can I buy you a drink? That would be nice. While we're talking, let me offer you some free advice. And this, again, was what we were talking about earlier in terms of fives using their knowledge for the sake of others to what? to What, what did you say? To bring them security? To get them out of the rut that they're in? Yeah, can see the, all the details. Yeah, that's that's the five moving to eight in a healthy way. Is I have knowledge to offer you, and I'm going to help lead us out of this. And so, so here here is my knowledge of experience to make your life easier. Mm -hmm. Here's what you should do. To also use this, uh, it could also be something that an unhealthy five would do as to offer advice as say when it says free advice it's not free it's a bargaining chip it says when in the future i gave you some very useful advice uh that gives me leverage so if hmm. so in like knowledge is not free that's why colleges cost like a hundred <laughs> plus thousand dollars yeah as, as we see in society call knowledge is not free so He's not giving out free advice if he's unhealthy. He's using it as a way to leverage power mm, over Hamilton. Yeah. yeah. It's a control tactic for sure. It's also a way to assert dominance by mm, saying yep. that you have more knowledge over current things and what they should be doing. 
Yeah. So it puts Burr as a superior to Hamilton, which kind of kind of comes back to haunt him. Yeah, I like that. The advice, notice the advice. The advice is all about withdrawing yep. um, or putting up a front. Talk less. What? Smile more. <laughs> Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Hold all these things real tight to your chest. That's great yeah. five advice, yeah. right? Yep, yep. Don't give away your resources. Don't give away yes. your resources. Yeah. yeah. You want to get ahead. Yes. Fools who run their mouths off wind up dead. Uh, death might be coming for you. There's this, you know, you, you need to be aware of potential threats. Yeah. You got thoughts yeah. on that? I'd say the biggest enemy of a five is death because then they lose everything, if you think about it. Yeah, true. Is fives are greedy and they want to keep everything. So what Burr wants to keep is his his family's legacy, his information, right? And if death comes, you lose all of that. So it's just it's just a way of saying that you gotta you want to fools wind up dead. It's saying that fives stay alive longer because they have more information it's a way of consoling himself yeah that he won't lose everything if he stays hidden and keeps everything to himself yeah move to one of the best songs in the piece uh which is wait for it which is kind of the aaron burr song theodosia writes me a letter every day i'm keeping the bed warm while her husband is away on the British side in Georgia He's trying to keep the colonies in line Well, he can keep all of Georgia Theodosia, she's mine Again, relationships as assets hmm. Going on there And then he moves into the, the pre-chorus Love doesn't discriminate Between sinners and the saints It takes and it takes and it takes And we keep loving anyway We laugh and we cry and we break And we make our mistakes And if there's a reason, I'm so many you try then I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. Wait what do you what do you all see there? Well I see that I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to do the easiest thing and the thing that keeps me alive so that I can keep everything. Especially with the with uh yeah, with fives they want to they want to keep their things. So if he if he has to wait a year to make sure he keeps his things, then he's going to wait for it. Yeah. Withdrawing to... Well, we we talked about this a little bit with Smaug, like the knowing that the dwarves would come back, but he's not seeking out the dwarves to make sure they don't come back. He's waiting for them. The, the willingness to stay in place... Like this, this is part of avarice. Like the the they're not aggressive about keeping their stuff. They're they're totally fine sitting on their pile, mm-hmm. and waiting for the danger to come to them. In a, in a sense, yeah. If you wait it out, then the danger goes away. A lot of the fears that Burr has come in thinking about potential dangers that his family's experienced. It, the song moves on. My grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher, 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 preacher. But there are things that the homilies and hymns won't teach you. 
My mother was a genius. My father commanded respect. When they died, they left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. Value. There's again asset thinking and thoughtfulness about protection. What do what what do I have anyway? I'm an orphan. This is I'm sure that colors a lot of his thinking in terms of how to navigate his assets. But he's also past focused here. This is what's happened in the past, and he's already brought up death not discriminating. Well, I feel like I feel like he feels that with the when he's saying that my grandfather was a fire brimstone teacher preacher, right? And his mother was a genius father, command respect. He feels like he has gained those when they died. So he is a preacher, he is a genius and he commands respects. That was he feels like he owns. He feels like he is was given genius respect uh the job of being a preacher. He feels like he needs to keep those safe. And what he gained from his mother, father, or grandfather is what he uses to protect their legacy. That's what he's trying to, that's the thing he's trying to keep, right? Mm-hmm. And also, like, he doesn't, like, they, like, talk less, smile more. Part of that is about he is sacrificing whatever is inside of himself. He's not even necessarily sacrificing, but but sort of um, ignoring what might be his in order to protect this one thing that he thinks he has. So so yeah. like like he might have ambition or or desire outside of protecting their legacy. But he has given that up, like like repressed it almost, in order to make sure that he maintains this thing, this this asset that he, this one asset that he has. Yeah. And and that to me speaks speaks to this the like there's um, fives are like they they sort of shut down to their inner desires. Like this is part of the objectivity is is that they they remain they try to remain neutral in this way and and his his goal is to protect the legacy the one asset that he was handed from his family which is their legacy mm-hmm. i misspoke he says love doesn't discriminate in the second verse and then the third verse he says or in this following the discussion of his grandfather and his mother and father then he says death doesn't discriminate and then the chorus hits and I mean, it's, it's about the most withdrawn kind of song there is mm-hmm. <laughs> wait for yeah. it Thoughts on that, Teach? Again, this this strikes me very much like what we talked about with Smaug. It's just the like comfortable staying where I'm at. This is the way to to protect myself. The danger that that might be happening might come for me, and I'll be prepared for it when it does. 
so long as I wait for it. I feel like the biggest line in all of that is the I am inimitable, I am an original. Because if you look at it from the opposite side, because it paints Hamilton as the hero the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. When when you see him say, I am inimitable, I am an original, that's it feels like to me that's him trying to console himself because Hamilton is admitting him better than he is. So it just mm. completely douses the the saying that I am inimitable, I am an original. This is a thing that fuels the hate for Hamilton because he feels like Hamilton does everything that he does just better. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually where the song then goes because then he starts focusing on Hamilton. I mean, just the juxtaposition between Burr, who does have something to lose in his fiveness, and Hamilton, who doesn't have something to lose, and so is able to play the game differently. What is it like in his shoes? Hamilton doesn't hesitate, he exhibits no restraint. Takes and he takes and he takes and he keeps winning anyway. Changes the game, plays and he raises the stakes. And if there's a reason he seems to thrive and so few survive, then goddammit, I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. I think that's exactly right that he sees the, the distinction between himself and Hamilton, and he knows exactly how he's playing the game, how Hamilton's playing the game. And he's just he's pushing into his stance, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the he changes the game. It I think it might not be that Hamilton isn't changing the game. It's that Burr realizes he's been playing the wrong game. He's been going for the wrong things. Hamilton has been fighting in the war, trying to make the new democracy. While Burr has really not been doing much as it seems in this maybe like writing a few things trying to get theodosia right he's he's trying to keep his assets in check but hamilton doesn't have any assets so he can just do whatever he wants without worrying because he knows what it's like to have nothing and when you have like as as some people say the scariest thing is a man who has nothing because they will do everything so that's what Hamilton is to Burr. I I would also so uh, it's it's hard to know this because a lot of fives aren't don't share that much, but but there's like the um when when the wings come in and influence, we see a lot of fives that that sort of lean into their six wing, but but when fives lean into that four wing, I think we see a lot of what's happening with Burr here, where he he wants some kind of recognition. He wants to be known as someone who is an individual. Like he, he has worked, he spent so much of his life protecting his parents' legacy, but also he wants to be seen as something outside of that. And, and the detriment that the, the, the sort of trap that fives can fall into is that they don't share anything about themselves and then they feel like nobody sees them 
and it, it seems like there is a lot of that, like like Burr Burr's sort of descent into villainy has to do with that reality is that he wants to be important. He wants to be seen as a great thinker. He wants to be seen as someone who is like Hamilton. He wants wants to be revered and 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 have influence in the way that Hamilton does. But his philosophy for life is talk less and smile more. So he's caught in this trap where the very thing that he's doing is causing him to lose on the thing that he wants. And he sees Hamilton getting that thing. He's playing the wrong game. It's not like what I said earlier. It's not Hamilton changing the game. It's him realizing that Hamilton was playing the game correctly. He's been playing chess like it's checkers. Right. Right. Yeah. The one of the things I like that you brought up wings. We don't talk much about wings here, but oftentimes wings will because they're not as important as people make them out to be. (laughs) That's true. But for here, the the primary motive of being secure for the five is balanced by the four side of him pulling him out of that place of waiting so you know you are original and you should you should push into that to create some balance in your life and perhaps that's that might be the the big inner struggle with this character Mm -hmm. later in the piece burr's gonna sing about how it would be nice it might it must be nice to have washington on your side it's again george washington for hamilton is an asset um just thinking about relationships in terms of assets. And then when he can't get the the big asset that he wants, the presidency, that's when he goes villainous, it seems to me, gets in a situation in a duel with Hamilton that he knows he will win because he knows Hamilton is a person of principle. And throughout the piece, well, this was the big thing for Hamilton, isn't it? That um, he doesn't sponsor Burr or cheer for Burr, uh, runs against Burr because Burr has no principles. In my opinion, the strongest Burr, the healthiest Burr ever is, is when he's running for president. Mm. But then Hamilton comes up and says that he has no beliefs. Burr has beliefs. He just has never never showed any of his beliefs in the series. So that's Mm. all Hamilton has to go behind. So when he gets put down for having no beliefs, it's like it's like a plane crash. He's mm-hmm. he's been sitting in the bunker for years now. Then he finally gets to run for president. Or he finally gets to take off. He's now flying. But then Hamilton comes out of nowhere and his wing just falls off and he just crashes. Yeah. Becky, you're the man. Thank you for helping us with our deep dive. Yeah, that's some good take. I'm pretty sure that your dad wouldn't have figured out that Burr was a five if you hadn't been there. So, this is true. Thanks. Yeah. I also agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 Any last words on uh, on villainous fives? We have talked a lot about. I feel like there there's been more conversation about ways to sort of protect yourself to, um, to to move towards health in this conversation than we have done in a lot of our other villain conversations. I, I, I feel for 
I feel like you you would have to be a particular kind of sociopath to turn from normal fiveness to like true villainy, and you would come out someone like Sugar or Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fives don't let don't let yourself become a sociopath. People matter. <laughs> <laughs> We skipped one of the most famous of Villainous Fives, which would be one Scrooge from uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol. Right. And the reason being is that, TJ, would you describe your and I's uh, you know, deep affection for the Muppets' Christmas Carol? Uh I, I've heard the word guilty pleasure used, and I wouldn't really describe it as a guilty pleasure because everyone who thinks that there's a better... Christmas Carol out there, you're wrong. Like, it's not that this is a guilty pleasure for me. It's that you all are wrong. Muppets Christmas Carol is the best version. It is known Khaleesi. It's just just (laughs) reality. Someday, we we are going to just tackle some Muppets just for fun. Because who doesn't want to to look into the inner motivations of the Muppet characters? Honestly, that sounds like a blast to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sometime in the next decade, we'll get to that. Sure. All right, well, that wraps our deep dive into the Villainous Fives. Hey, friends, it would mean the world to us if you'd pause, take two seconds, and write us a brief review or give us uh, some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. You can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. Uh, shout outs on Twitter and Instagram are always appreciated, but the best thing you can do is share this episode with somebody that you love. Uh, the music is by the collection out of Greensboro, North Carolina and by, well, who is it this time? It's, it's by Howard Shore. Cause we're ripping yeah, some Shore. of the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some of the, the music from uh, silence and Lynn Manuel Miranda also did, uh, the Hamilton. And many others. Hey, TJ, you got anything else? I got nothing. Beckett, you got anything? Go watch Hamilton on Disney Plus if you haven't seen it. It's fantastic. He is Beckett Cook. He is amazing. Uh, He's TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. And I'm Jeff Cook. And who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are because that's where the gold is. Mm -hmm.